Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8 is where we're going to be. And we have a pretty, pretty uh, interesting story in front of us. So Luke 8. And uh, once you flip to Luke 8, let's stand for the reading of Scripture. All right, Luke chapter 8, verse 26. This is what the scripture says. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what's your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat. What we have before us in this story is a man whose entire life has been stolen from him. Can you imagine if there was a man so dangerous, so wild, so belligerent in our town that our solution was to chain him up at a graveyard? 
You know, you really could see Jesus when he talks about the thief coming to steal, kill, and destroy. You could think of him thinking about this man. But right here, in one encounter with Jesus, Jesus turns this man into one of the very first missionaries for the gospel. So what I want to say to you this morning is that you did not walk into a religious gathering in which you will be fed a bunch of to-dos or a list of practices or disciplines to suffice for religious activity. But you just entered an encounter where your entire life could change. The thing you are most hopeless about could change today. Do you believe that? Now, this section that we've just entered in Luke chapter 8 is a section that is exhibiting the power of Jesus. So last week, if you remember, we talked about Jesus' power over nature. He's in the boat. There's a storm that comes. He calms nature. He calms the storm, right? And this story, we are seeing that Jesus is not only powerful over nature, but he is powerful over even the demonic, And certainly, you know, these moments that we're reading about are validation of Jesus being God. You know, you read these stories and you're like, that's God stuff, right? But I want to put forth to you this morning that these are also kingdom descriptions with beliefs that we're supposed to acquire through reading them. You are supposed to believe new things when you read these stories, You're supposed to acquire like a new set of ways of thinking when you read about Jesus in these stories, such as Jesus is the creator and he is powerful to calm creation. But And here he is. What are we going to learn from this one? Well, we're learning that he's powerful than any number of demons. Throw a legion of demons at, at, at him and they're still under his feet. Now, there are all sorts, you know, I could have gone like a bunch of different ways, and this is the way that it is when you're teaching Jesus. It's why you have to continue to teach Jesus, um, because you could have gone just a bunch of different ways to get to the kind of different messages that are within this story. But one of the most interesting things to me is the location of where all of this happens. This region, the Gerasenes, is right across the, uh, the, lake of Gal- or the Sea of Galilee from um, Galilee. And this word Gerasene uh, is really, really interesting. The root of it is Goresh. Can you say Goresh? Goresh. In Hebrew, it's Goresh. Now, that's the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 3 for expel. So, you know, when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they are Goreshed from the garden. So what is this place, the Gerasenes? What is this place? It's the expelled region. It's the anti-Eden. That's what it is. And you can kind of tell this just by by reading this because these are um, Jews who are raising pigs. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish law, Jews are not supposed to have any sort of contact with pigs. And yet Jesus comes to the Goresh. He comes to the expelled region, and they're behaving like an expelled region. They're raising swine. Now, some people have argued that, you know, the presence of swine here in this region reveals that it was a Gentile population. But another possibility, and certainly, I think, nodded to by the name of the region, is that these are backslidden Jews. These were the people of God, but they've backslidden. 
These are once that they had the covenantal promises of Israel bearing on, upon their life, and they stopped believing them. They gave them up. It's a culture, you have to understand, that is far from God and not used to his presence. And so there's this man. Now, you could imagine this man, he grew up with probably little to no family. He was probably disadvantaged in many, many different ways. He began to probably take on a stigma in his teen years about his identity, and then he kind of doubled down on that, and the torment went even deeper. Maybe he was a drunk, and he was open to demonic spirits, or, or, or maybe he'd been cursed by all the adults in his life. Oh, you'll never be, amount to more than this. You'll never be more than this. You're never going to do anything with your life, and he, he believed them. And so here he is. He meets Jesus, and he's naked, a shell of a human, and I want you to see something. It's pretty fascinating. He is both attracted to Jesus, but he is also repulsed by Jesus. So, so, so look down in verse 27. It says this, when Jesus stepped ashore, so he steps ashore out of the boat, the first thing that happens is he's met by the demon-possessed man. Nobody else from the town there's no, pity, no other people see him coming from far off and go, I need, I, need, I need to go you know, meet this guy as he comes to the shore. It is only this demon-possessed man who has this, this attraction to Jesus. But then notice he's also tormented by Jesus. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell at his feet, shouting, what do you want with me? There's this torment. I'm attracted, but also tormented. And, you know, I think that this is the tension of actually all people who are far from God. They want God. Deep down, they know they need God, but the demonic wants them to hate God. We have to keep that in mind when we think about a culture like ours, where it seems like so many are against uh, believers, so many are against God. It's like deep down, they actually want him, but they are under the influence of demons that want them to hate him. Now, notice th this is the only time that I can find within the Gospels where Jesus really corresponds with a demon, like has any kind of a conversation with a demon. And here he asks the name of the demon, which the name of the demon I think is very telling. It's Legion. It's Legion. Um, and, and Legion is an interesting name because it's a Roman military term. And I, so I think that Luke, the author, is actually showing us that this is war, there's, what, there's a demonic line of, of offense over here, and then there's Jesus with his, uh, you know, his battle crew, and there is a warfare encounter that is taking place. And what's really fascinating is one commentator pointed out that the demons, when they go into the pigs, what do they do? They make the pigs act like a legion marching into the abyss to their death. Now, there's so many different things to emphasize. But I want to emphasize one thing this morning, it's this. I want to emphasize what the demonic does to a person and what Jesus will do about it. What does the demonic do to a person and what will Jesus do about it? So, demons and deliverance. Now, the Bible recognizes, this is all throughout the Bible, it recognizes that we live in a spiritual world. This is not just a physical world that we exist in. It's a spiritual world. And there are very real gods, and Elohim, I promise you, I'm not going to go into it this week. I've done, I've like beat it to death, but if you're curious, go listen to our spiritual warfare series. There are very real gods and demons who inhabit the world and who are uncreating in nature, meaning 
that they seek to undermine and reverse the order and the design that God intended from the beginning. What do demons do? They seek to undermine and to reverse the order and the good design that God intended from the beginning. And, and this is the primary aim. They're trying to undo humans. What God intends in a human's life, the good that we were talking about, uh, we see this you know, from the serpent in the garden to Cain in the field to Lamech bragging about killing a man in front of his wives. Demons, their primary aim is undoing humanity. And look at what we have here. It's, it's, it's like a perfect case study. We have this man who has superhuman strength, but it's not within in his control. It's in the control of the demon. Uh, this man is not driven into community, into society. He's actually driven away from people. He's isolated. He's living among the dead. Why is he living among the tombs? Why is he living among the dead? Well, in Hebrews, the author says that people are held in bondage simply by their fear of death. So what is his life? His whole life has become death. What is his future? His whole future is just death. No hope, just death. Now, uh, John Calvin, uh, the theologian, uh, he described well the situation of this man. He said this, We shouldn't think that what is only wrong with the world is human passion gone awry, but that there are real spiritual demons who aim to drag humans into the same abyss they, not them, they are being sent to. John Calvin with his typos, that's just crazy, man. Um, sheesh. I want to propose to you that in comparison to Yahweh, these demon gods are nothing. They're nothing. But here's the key. You, people, have the ability to make them something through worship and sacrifice. That's really what this story is telling. You know, to Jesus, the demon cowers. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Just at least send me into the pig. But to the person who gives their, themselves to the demon, that demon controls their life. Now, I think many of you, you could read this story, and you could see how demon worship would lead to a situation like this one. It kind of makes sense. The gore of it all, the nudity, the blatant pagan nature of this story. It sounds demonic, Right? Of course, anyone who's interested in witches and demons and dungeons and dragons, etc., would have this sort of thing happen to them. And I think that's true. I really do think that we should be careful about the sort of things that we participate in that's, that are overtly um, kind of wicked and are overtly, uh, they on the surface level, just appear demonic. We should be very careful about that. The movies we watch, even items that we own. But if you only stopped there, if demon possession was only, it only happened to people who were seeking it, you would be missing how 90% of demonization occurs today in the West. And it's the reason why is because our definition of worship is too small. See, um, belief is worship. Maybe let's all just say that together. Belief is worship. Attention is worship. Let's say that one too. Attention is worship. So when we believe lies, when we give attention to lies, we are agreeing with the demonic. Dare I say we are worshiping 
a demonic worldview simply by continuing to entertain a, a belief that is rooted in a lie. Giving attention to a belief that is rooted in a lie. See, I think that most demon worship today in the West doesn't take the form of overtly demonic imagery, but is far more normal in kind. Think about a few different kind of case studies or people, if you will. Think of the man who sacrifices time with his family on the altar of money for years. Think of the woman who sacrifices her body on the altar of youth and beauty. Or the young adult who sacrifices honesty on the altar of projecting an image and being accepted by a specific group of people. You may look at those and those are very normal examples, but I would argue that behind each of these, there is a God. The God of money, the God of sex, the God of power. All of which have real demonic energy behind them. And when we sacrifice for these things... We are not simply chasing material or chasing people. We are actually giving ourselves to gods, to demon gods. So then what do demonized people look like today? What is it? You know, I really, I asked myself this question. What does a demonized person in the West look like? Well, I think it's the person who is constantly deconstructing all of God's ordered design. In other words, they're constantly working against nature through surgery or cosmetics. They're, they're trying to extend their life or to, uh, to, to thwart the effects of aging. They're living under the fear of death daily. There's this very, uh, well, I don't know, he's famous to me. He, show, he shows up in my feed, so uh, I don't know what this says about me. Uh, but there's this, like, billionaire guy named Brian Johnson who is trying to reverse aging. He, he, he's, like, super rich, so he spends $2 million a year to, on supplements and on different, you know, workout strategies and light therapies and all these sorts of things to try to reverse age, to reverse all of his aging. And at this point, he's projected to live till 200. So... I thought about that. I was like, you know, you could live, this guy, you could live to 200, spending $2 million a year. Hopefully you still have the money. Money, I guess it compounds. He'll be all right. But you could, you could live to 200, and, and you'd have 200 years of living in fear of death. I think that's, uh, like, I'm not saying he's demonic. I'm saying that the fear is, is under the influence of a demon. You know, I think somebody, you know, another, another example would be somebody who's entitled. I think it's demonic to be entitled, believing that all of the world is in your way and that you are the center of the universe. That's demonic thinking. Or the person who manipulates others through charm or through anger and just constantly has a need to be in control. That's a demonic way of thinking. Or somebody who's exploitative uh, sexually, uh, using pornography or using other people for carnal satisfaction. That's a demonic way of living. Or for the person who um, money is all that matters so that their relational lives crumble because money was always placed first. That's somebody who's demonized. You know, I, I think we see people bound up in this stuff all the time and probably even many of us in this room. But all encompass, all of these things encompass demonic ways of seeing yourself, of seeing God and the world around you. Now, what I just described is a little bit different than the picture of the man that Jesus meets, right? 
it's a little bit more normal, or it's um, in our culture, uh, uh, how would we say, it's approved of, it's normalized. How does somebody get to this place, though? Don't you want to know? How do you get to this place, like the living isolated, the nudity, you know, the real dramatic head-spinning stuff? How do you get there? Well, in my experience with people who are demonized to this degree, which there's only been a handful of experiences that I've had, but people will eventually give themselves to fear, resentment, and bitterness to their past controlling them, to anger, so much so that their entire way of thinking is constantly being influenced by the demonic voice of lack. It's a voice of lack. You lack this. You lack this. If only they would do this for you. If only you had this. And you listen to it long enough and it begins to deconstruct all of your expectations on the world and your responsibility and your participation in it. When it's unrepented, this leads to what we typically would think when we imagine a demonized person. The voice of the demon becomes loud, almost deafening. Anytime hope or joy enters, the voice gets stronger and the demon gets control of the mind and eventually of the body. It's something that we should be aware of. Now, I want to declare this morning over this church and even over our value that God will rid you of your demons and use you to do the same. God will rid you of your demons, and he will use you to do the same. If there is one thing that you take away from this story, it's that there's no situation that you have found yourself in that is hopeless. If I just listen, in my list of uh, people who, are, who live demonized, you're like, that's me in like three of those categories. Guess what? You just met the same, guy, the same person that this guy met. You just met Jesus. He's in this room, and nothing is impossible for him. He's the creator. All his enemies have been made his footstool. It says that he triumphed over them on the cross, making a public spectacle of them. Here's a man in this story who started out as the most feared member of the community. Literally, they chained him up and he ended as a powerful missionary, clothed and in his right mind. And he can, Jesus can do that for you today as well. What I want to do this morning is I want to normalize the reality that all people will deal with the demonic. All of us will deal with the demonic. In fact, in the early church, they would have exorcisms for all new believers. It's like, you want to join the church? Great. We got to get an exorcism scheduled for you. How about Tuesday at 2? It's going to take a little while for you. I'm serious. They really did that. I'm considering it. Well, I'm, we're like, we're, 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 for our vision series this year, we're going to have some exorcisms or something. Hopefully, we'll have some today, actually, because um, it is just a beautiful thing when people get free from the demonic. I'm here to tell you that literally every person needs to get free from demonic thinking. And here's how I know. I call it the hope test. I call it the hope test. I want you to, um, just for a moment, pause and get some, somewhat self-reflective. I want you to ask yourself, is there anything that I'm hopeless about right now? I want you to ask yourself that question. Is there anything that I'm hopeless about right now? Maybe it's a financial thing. You're like, I will never get out of debt. I will never be able to afford a home. I will never be able to go to school next year. Maybe it's a relational thing. Maybe there's some kind of relational problem that you're facing or some kind of uh, relational breakdown that's taken place and you're just totally hopeless about it. 
Maybe it's your own mental world. Maybe there's something internally in you that seems out of order, and no matter who you talk to, how much counseling you go to, you have gotten no relief. Is there anything that you're hopeless about right now? I heard a pastor recently say that God told him he, could, he, he had permission to be hopeless about anything that God is hopeless about. <laughs> you have permission to be hopeless about anything that God is hopeless about. <laughs> but God is not hopeless about anything. I want you to get this this morning. Next slide. Any place without hope is under the influence of a lie. And any place under the influence of a lie is under the influence of the demonic. Any place without hope is under the influence of a lie. And any place under the influence of a lie is under the influence of the demonic. If you want to know where the demonic is showing up in your life, where are you hopeless? See, God is not a liar. Satan is a liar. And hope comes, how do you get hope? Hope comes when you actually get God's perspective on the situation in front of you. See, the reason why you're hopeless is that you simply don't, you have not applied faith to the situation in front of you. Any situation that is hopeless is that way because you have yet to find out what he says about it. And if you, and if you did find out what he said about it and you stopped believing him, then you need to repent and you need to go back and believe him again. I'm doing this right now. I was with Andonian Jim and uh, Bria the other night having a meeting, talking about the church, and I was explaining how exhausted I am right now. I think it's largely because I have two children whose job it is to try to, like, kill me, basically, right now. <laughs> and I'm just so tired all the time. And you know what? I, I, I'm a, I have a few weeks off preaching after this week, and I literally thought to myself, I'm like, there's a finish line. I'm just going to try to survive. When God sent me and sent our team to plant this church, he did not tell me, I have a vision for you. Go survive in Newburgh. When God told me to come plant this church and he told our team to plant this church, he said, I'm going to start a revival in Newburgh of all places. I'm going to start a revival in Newburgh that is so contagious it's going to spread over those hills and it's going to reach other towns. It's going to reach other places. He gave us a vision. He said, I remember he showed me this image of a, a tapestry being laid over the, these wonderful hills. It was this beautiful woven tapestry. And he said, I'm laying a spirit of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I'm ex making an exchange with this church. You come into this, it, it's for five years, I can't think of a Sunday where I've not experienced the tangible felt presence of God in our times of worship. And so Andoni, he's like, he's like, he's like, you're not tired. You just stop believing. And I want to tell you this morning, it's what he started on, actually. You're not tired. You think you're tired. You just don't have faith for whatever's in front of you. You, you have yet to get his perspective on it. And it's the hopelessness that grinds because you were not designed to live with demonic voices influencing the way that you make decisions. You were designed to find out what he says and to apply his perspective to the situation and to walk in hope. Cheerfulness comes from hope. You know, it says God loves a cheerful giver. And I think, you know, many of us, we're not cheerful about giving because we have yet to apply faith to our finances. 
We don't make decisions financially with faith. We make decisions financially with, you know, best practices of the world. Cheerfulness comes from hope and it's evidence. Your, your, your attitude is evidence that you have applied trust in God to that situation because there is nothing that God is hopeless about. So if you find out what he's saying, you can't stay hopeless. You know, Jesus asked his disciples in the previous story, actually, where is your faith? In other words, have you applied faith? Have you applied trust to the situation to the degree that it changes your attitude? Because your attitude is the summary of your belief system. Your attitude about life is the summary of what you really believe. Evangelicals, especially charismatic evangelicals, get accused of being like too happy clappy all the time. It's kind of like every time somebody is up there, they're always happy or they're pretending to be happy or they're always cheerful or they're like, come on, lift up a shout of praise, will you? And you're like, okay, not, not yet. We'll maybe get there. And there's just this kind of sense of like, you know, are you, are you just faking it? Well, I hope you're not faking it because there are reasons to be cheerful and it's that God wins. There are reasons to have cheer. Okay. So I really saw God going after our beliefs this morning. There are some of you in this room who have demonic beliefs that God is going to set you free from today. He's going to sweep your house and then he's going to move in with his own truth for you to believe. And you're going to get hopeful again. And you're going to get vision again. And you're going to stop thinking about the world through a demonic lens of death. I'm just going to try not to die. But eventually I'll die. So I better try to get as much as I possibly can. Don't you know it was the temptation of ownership that was the very first temptation in the garden? Own this material, you'll have a good life. And it's the same thing today. You either see yourself as a steward of God's world with a hopeful mentality, seeing the world through his eyes, or you see yourself as trying to accumulate as much as you can before you die. And when you get hope, and when you get vision, you are going to become a feared person in the demonic realm. Your name's going to be known because you're going to be a force. The most feared person to the demonic is the person who's full of hope because they're uncontrollable. All the old demonic tricks don't work on them anymore. And they will confront the demonic wherever they find it. You will confront the demonic wherever you find it. So I want to talk just briefly about demonic confrontation. You know, it's one of the most basic things that Jesus sends his disciples out to do is to confront the demonic. And even me saying it right now, I feel some people like, oh, I wish I came on a different Sunday because this, kind of, this is going to get weird. How do we do this? How do we confront the demonic? You know, Jesus, he commands this, uh, this unclean spirit to leave, but it doesn't leave. It initially resists him, right? And so then Jesus asks his name. Now, I think some people have thought that this is like strategic. Get the demon's name, and if you can get the demon's name, then you'll get power over the demon. You know what I'm talking about? I think you know what I'm talking about. 
<laughs> that's a, that, that, was a, that was a laugh that's like, you've been through some prayer meetings. <clears throat> and, and this is what I, what is, this has led to what I call demon hunting. And I don't think it's a good idea. I really don't. The model that is found in the life of Jesus is you out now. That's the model. That's the model. Like 99% of the time, we don't see Jesus getting into a conversation. So uh, what, what's your name? And what do, you, what do you like about this person that you're inhabiting? And, you know, it's like you out now. You're, you are interfering with God's good creation. You are thwarting and uncreating. So you got to go. Followed by, typically, prayer, worship, the exaltation of Jesus. It's the model. Sweep the house, fill the house. No, you know, so, so what do you do? You say, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So what do you do when you have a demonic confrontation? You say, you out now, and it's time to declare that Jesus is Lord over yourself, over your body, and over the situation right now. You know, I think of, of even uh, the book of Revelation where it says that how do people conquer, how do humans conquer uh, the serpent? It's, it's, it's by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In other words, we don't conquer Satan by waging a new war. It's not our war that we conquer Satan by. We stand on the previous victory of Jesus, and we just remind the demonic, hey, you're defeated, you have no power, and so I'm not going to give you any power. I'm not making you bigger than you are. I'm making God bigger than, than I previously thought, and then you, you want me to think, and so you got to go right now. So we say Jesus is Lord. All principalities, all wayward Elohim, all demons must bow to Jesus. And we actually have the authority to do that. I've watched this countless amounts of times in my life and ministering to different people, praying with people. Demons listen to you. <laughs> they will listen to you, and they have to go. They have to obey Jesus. Now, what I'm getting at is that asking for a name is a little strange. It's a little strange. And I mean, it's Jesus, so he can do what he wants, right? But he doesn't use the name. He's not like, oh, now I got the name. I'm going to use this on you. Um, it almost seems like it doesn't matter. So it makes me want to give you this pastoral piece of wisdom, okay? A lot of times when you see demonic encounter in the church today, emotions get heightened. Voices raise. Tongues happen. <laughs> Pieces of fabric are laid on people and all kinds of stuff like that. So People, I think this happens because people are looking for a powerful encounter. They think, oh, this is it. You know, it, it, you either see it and you're like, I want nothing to do with that. I think lunch is calling. Or you're like, this is the power encounter I've been waiting for. Finally, demonic deliverance at St. Hill in the gathering. Okay. People are looking for a powerful encounter. And, and, you, and this is what I want to tell you. You may end up manufacturing one. Or... You may unknowingly amplify the largesse of the demonic, allowing not for the fear of the Lord in the space, but the fear of the demon in the space. I don't think we should do this. Fear of demons often manifests in endless amounts of be carefuls. I've had people literally, these are believers who, have, who I know you can cast out a demon yourself and they come to me like, I think, I don't think I'm trained enough. You should do it. Jesus literally tells this man, you're not coming with me. Go reach your town of demonized, uh, expelled people. 
It comes, typically the fear of the demonic comes with these, like, you better be careful and this sense of urgency and we have to do it right now and this intensity that I find rarely helpful. It isn't to say that the release of people from the demonic isn't urgent. It is urgent. It is to say that we demonstrate our security in the victory of Jesus by how much we are at peace in a moment like that. I find the more that I need to physically or verbally amp myself up for deliverance, the more I'm trying to convince myself, not the demon. So what do we take from this? What do we take from a story like this? Well, I I think we probably shouldn't ask for demons' names. I don't think we should do this. Because 99 other times that Jesus encounters demons, he doesn't do that. He He just, you out now. There are demons, if you, if you know the, uh, the gospel as well. There is one instance where the disciples can't cast out a demon. And what does Jesus say? This one comes out only by prayer, but then he doesn't pray. In other words, I think that one of the best ways that you can ensure that you are authoritative over a demon is you can live a life of constant communication with God, with the creator of prayer, so that when you encounter a demonic way of believing or or somebody who has been demonized in any sense, you actually have authority in that moment because you are walking hand in hand with your creator, the one who made them, right? So I think we stick with you out now. That's what I think we stick with. To me, this instance is an instance of Luke lifting the reader's eyes and saying, there is a cosmic battle that you exist in. It's legion. Make no mistake. So walk with Jesus. So walk with the one who has authority. Now, there's another aspect that I wanted to address about demonic confrontation, and that's the garrisoned fallacy. The garrisoned fallacy. Um, There is an entire logical fallacy named after this story. It's called the garrisoned fallacy fallacy, as you can tell. And it is the belief, here's the fallacy, it's the belief that when humans are all unified and going in the same direction, it's a good thing. That's the garrison fallacy. Just like all of the pigs who were going in the same direction, they were going in the same direction to their death under the mind control of the demonic. So the garrison fallacy is the belief that when you see a group of humans unified, all going in the same direction, it's a good thing. Not necessarily. When I read about this fallacy, I thought, well, you know, this is exactly what's going on in our culture today. I couldn't think of a better image for the way demons interact with humans than a herd of pigs under mind control going towards their death in the abyss. And the lie of the fallacy, at least within our culture, is, hey, at least, the, at least we have unity It's placing unity and and peace at such a high uh, level that you fall into the garrison fallacy. All of us are going in the same direction. All of us are believing the same thing. It's a good thing. Peace, unity, love, acceptance. Now, here's the problem with this. You are assigning virtue without knowing the end goal or the end result. You could look and you could go, our culture would say, oh, this group of humans, they're loving one another. Yes, and they're headed towards hell. Oh, this group of humans in in this culture, we have a unity. Yes, and they're going towards the abyss. So their acceptance of one another isn't virtuous. In this case, it's demonic. It's demonic. 
we are living in a cultural garrison fallacy, a wicked generation that is all in lockstep, marching down the embankment into the abyss. A corrupt generation who has hijacked the concepts of love and unity to mean things that they do not, wanting you to call it all virtuous when in fact they are going to their death. And make no mistake, this creates, like why, why, why get cultural? Why not get personal? Well, here's, here's why. This creates a culture to live in and to raise children in. One where demonic thinking doesn't have to be taught. It's simply the air that we breathe. So you have to, you have to understand as parents, this is specifically for the parents, you are raising children within a culture that is a garrison fallacy. It is wanting you to just don't buck against the system. Don't push back. Join us. Join the flow. Why do you always have to be such a stickler? Why do you have to hold those beliefs? Why do you have to think the way that you do? Why do you have to abstain from the things that you have to abstain from? Just come on. It's a good thing. We have unity. Unity unto hell. So what do we do? What do we do? We rest in the victory of Christ by becoming homes of truth. Homes of truth. There's two kinds of demonic confrontation that I'm talking about. There's the one where you you meet the individual and you speak to the individual and you release the individual and the other is where you become a boulder of resoluteness standing in the midst of a river that's rushing past you and you say, I will not budge, I will not be moved. As for me and my house, we will live with the fear of the Lord. As for me and my house, we will stand with our creator. I will not bow to the flow, to the garrison fallacy, to the pigs rushing down the embankment. We are to become homes of truth, repulsive in our dependence. Remember, this guy's repulsed by Jesus, but attractive in our hope. Like, I don't want to live that dependent. I don't, want to, I don't want to be, man, what a crutch you have in your life. But I've never met anybody who has more hope than you. I've never met anybody who talks like you. I've never met anybody who sees the world the way that you see it. So yeah, I got this image this morning of a giant boulder in the middle of a rushing river, resolute and not budging. And that's what I think we are to be. If our intensity constantly matches the insanity which, by the way, this is, this, this, this is like conservative believers across America have a temptation to allow their emotional world to, to match the insanity. If that's the case, then we are living in reaction to a demonic culture rather than responding to the victorious hope giver. What does he say? The more frantic I see believers, the less authority I think you have. The more resolute, no, as for me and my house, this is what we believe. This is what God has said. This is who we will be. We will not follow what, what everybody else is following. We will not do what everybody else is doing. I remember my mom would say, you know, when I turned 13, I wanted to watch all these PG-13 movies, and she's like, Hollywood is not your parent. I'm your parent. I tell you what you can watch when you're 13, not, not what's on the back of the DVD or whatever. It's, it's, I'm like, you know, it's so funny. It's like you become your parents. You're like, holy cow. I'm like the same guy. I'm like, I'm like, we are not going to be watching, you know, whatever. Look, Jesus is at peace. All things are under his feet. And as believers, that's how we walk in this world. Our lives are to be a witness that we are not our own. Demons want you to take ownership for yourself. 
to be a God, to define good and evil for yourself, but instead our lives are shaped around repentance to the truth constantly. Repentance is not a one-time thing that you do. It's a daily lifestyle of constantly checking your hope. I just gave you a tool today. You check your hope. Where am I hopeless? I've believed a lie. I've believed a lie here. I need to repent into the truth. God, what do you say? What does your word say? And that is where joy and hope is. So to the world of Garish, to this expelled world that we exist in, we demonstrate being seated in heavenly places by a resolute hope, that anchor for the soul, for God's glory and this valley's liberation. In Jesus' name, let's stand. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.